diving into our conversation today. Uh, we've started this conversation a couple weeks ago called uh, His Name is Jesus. And really, this conversation started last year. So a year ago, we started to have the conversation about what we wanted to focus our minds on this year. And so myself, Pastor Andrew, some other pastors from our fellowship got together and said, what is something that we believe our churches need to hear? What's something we need to focus on? And so we decided that that thing we're going to focus on was hope. We want to have hope. We want to be people who have hope. We want to be people that understand that God's in control. We want to lean into that. But we also understand that the way things are today, depending on whether it's your life personally or just the way things are in general, sometimes hope is difficult. It's difficult to look at circumstances sometimes and say, we want to be hopeful or it's easy to be hopeful in certain circumstances. And so what we would say is that Jesus is the answer to that. No matter whether it's a personal issue, a world issue, that when Jesus gets involved with that conversation, things change. And so we started our conversation this year saying that hope has a name. The hope is sometimes something we try and grab onto, we try and figure out, but really when we understand that Jesus is the answer to that hope, then we can actually lean into that relationship and understand that differently. So then the next logical question was, how do we do that well? How do we study that? Where do we go in Scripture? And so we started this conversation in the book of Luke, and we've tracked most of the year through different parts of the book of Luke, and so now we're getting to the end of Luke. And we find ourselves in a place where Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's not going to leave Jerusalem. He's actually there. He's going to go to the crucifixion. And so we're in the, in the chapters where the, the rubber's meeting the road for him with the disciples. Like they, he's been teaching them for three years and kind of having conversations and other people have gathered around. And now he's knowing that his time is short. And so he's sharing these very important truths going on. And so when that happens, he dives in and says, these are the important things I need you to know before I go. And so where we're going to go today is uh, Luke 22, and I'm going to encourage you to go to your follow along. Uh, the way to do that is you take your Next Steps card and you can scan little QR code on the back, uh, or you can scan that right there on the screen. That will get you to our website, which has all the verses, all the notes, all the fill in the blanks there for you. And you can even submit a prayer request or a question. And we're going to go to Luke 22. And this is, we're going to bounce a little bit today, okay? So we'll warn you about that. We're going to bounce around a little bit. But this is a conversation that Jesus is going to have that's actually rooted in the Old Testament. And this is really cool when this happens because when we look back and we can see Jesus kind of bringing forth some of the stuff of the Old Testament, it just marries the scriptures really well together. And we see kind of the narrative that comes all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so in Luke 22, starting in verses 1 and 2, it says this, The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So, so let's, there's a lot packed in this, these couple verses. So let's just pause for a second. Here's what's happening. Jerusalem at the time of the Passover would get absolutely bonkers, okay? Think back in the day. No one goes to malls anymore, but think back in the day like the mall the few days before Christmas, okay? Everybody's there. Everybody's got something to do. Everybody's got a place to go. You can't park anywhere. It's crazy. This is Jerusalem at the time of the Passover because they would all come back and they would celebrate here and, and things were just bonkers, okay? So all of this is happening. Everyone's attention is on this holiday, but for the religious leaders, they're trying to figure out how to kill Jesus. So there's this underlying plot that's happening, okay? 
Everybody's attention's up here on this holiday. There's this plot that's happening behind the scenes where the religious leaders are trying to get rid of Jesus. But the problem is, and we talked about this a little bit last week, the people love Jesus. They, they love following him. They want to see what he's going to do. Some of them believe he's the Messiah, which in their minds means he's going to overthrow the Roman government. They love him. They don't want him to go anywhere. And so the religious leaders know if they're the ones responsible for taking out Jesus, the people are going to be mad at them. So they're trying to figure out a way to do this, take him out, get rid of him, don't have him around anymore, but in a way that saves their skin, okay? So that's what's happening at this point. So verses 3 and 4, it says this, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. So we know this, right? If you've been around in, if you've been around church long enough, I mean, if you say bad guys of the Bible, Judas's name pops up pretty quick. And you read this passage, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, right? So Satan entered into Judas. What does that mean? That's a weird statement. Does that mean that he was actually possessed? Does it mean that he was just tempted? We don't know. It could have been a situation where there was a possession that happened, or it could have just been a situation where, like, when we look back at, at Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, he kind of gets this interaction with Satan, and Satan's like, you should do this, you should do that, you should push this way, whatever. And Jesus kept saying, no, I'm not going to do that. The scriptures say this, this is what we need to know. And Judas didn't say that. Judas just said, okay, let's do that. Let's go have this conversation. Let's lean in this way. Let's keep going. And so he gets influenced from Satan and he decides to figure out the way and have this conversation so that he can betray Jesus over to them. They were delighted. The, the religious leaders are super excited that, that Judas is going to do this. And they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. So now they've got an inside man who can help them get to him when there's no crowds. They can arrest Jesus, they can get rid of him without anybody knowing, and they can take care of business without the people getting mad. Here's the first thing I want us to understand about, about the situation, what we can learn actually from Judas. And it's this, just because you're close to Jesus doesn't mean you love him. Or just because you're close to Jesus doesn't mean you know him. Like Judas had followed Jesus all of these three years. He saw the miracles. He interacted with him. He had conversations with him. And for us, we would maybe look back at that and go, how could you not love Jesus? Like you got to talk to him, see him, whatever. And there are times probably in our lives where we go, I just wish I could sit with Jesus and have that conversation, right? You're dealing with a difficult decision or an unknown circumstance. You're like, if I could just sit with Jesus for 10 minutes, right? And Judas got to do that all the time. And yet he decides he's going to give in and he's going to... Give Jesus over to the guys that want to get rid of him. One of the things that we need to be really careful of, even as, as people that are in church and around church, whatever, we can be close to him or we can seem close to him. We can do all the right things and still not be actively pursuing a relationship with him or actively choosing him in our lives. And we see that with Judas. And so there, there's this like, friction where, where when Dan was talking earlier, like he said about we do make that decision. We, we jump into that. And we, we understand there's a moment where we believe, but there's a continued process of understanding, am I actually pursuing Jesus? Is there a sanctification that's happening continually in our lives? And for Judas, at some point, that stopped. He didn't continue on that path. And so we have to be careful that we do continue on that path and we do pursue a relationship with Jesus and not just rest in the fact that we know who he is or we know about him or we follow the rules. 
And so in verses 7 and 8 of Luke 22, it goes on. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived, and the Passover lamb, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Verses 9 and 10. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, verses 11 through 13, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up, and that is where you should prepare the meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. This is kind of cool. This is like a momentary like prophecy from Jesus, and all of a sudden, Everything just kind of happened. They go, okay, go prepare the pastor meal. They go, where do we do that? Jesus says, go left, go right, find the guy with the water jug, follow him home, and then go upstairs. They walk into town, they go left, they go right, they find the guy with the water jug. It's kind of cool. Like, they just see Jesus knew this, and in the, in the middle of this little tiny prophecy, it just comes true in the next, I don't know, few hours that they travel into town and figure this out. So in verses 14 to 16, it says, when the time came... Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verses 17, 18. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God over it for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Verse 19. So he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So again, we read this passage, and and if you've been in church for a while, you know what this is. It's called communion, right? This is what we do. And so different people and different denominations and things celebrate this differently. But in many churches, there are just times where we take bread and we take a cup, meaning we take bread and we usually take juice or in some context wine. And so we take that together. But here's what I know that can be kind of true and kind of weird is that communion can be an odd practice, right? Just think about it for a minute. There's not many social settings where you stop for a little while and have a little tiny snack, right? Like that's kind of what happens. It's kind of a weird thing. And even in the early church, they thought this was really weird. So they would, the early church would do this and they knew this teaching that Jesus had said. And so they would say over and over again, this is Jesus' blood. This is, this is his body, whatever. And people outside the church actually thought they were eating flesh and drinking blood. That's what they thought. So they would look at the early church and say, these people are weird, right? I don't want anything to do with them. They're doing things that are super odd. And so this practice, if you're not used to it, if you grew up in church, you're used to it. But if you're not used to it, it can be a little bit strange, especially if you've never seen it or you've never experienced it or you've experienced it in different ways. And so I just want to lean into that for a minute and, and ask the question, so why, why the bread and why the blood? Or why the cup and why the bread? Or why is it blood and why is it the body? Why do we focus on this idea? And really it helps us understand, looking at where Jesus is in the context of his story, that they're celebrating the Passover. So then the question is, well, well what was the Passover? How do we understand that. And if you, we're not going to go all the way there. We don't have time to go through the whole story of Passover, but I'll just give you the brief 
Cliff notes, right? If we remember, Moses is chosen by God and God tells him, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to get my people out of Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, I'm going to take your slave labor, all of us, and we're going to leave. Pharaoh doesn't respond very well to that. And so the plagues start to happen. There's all these things. There's flies, there's frogs, there's blood in the water, like all these things. But the last one was the Passover. And so God says that they are to take the lamb and they're going to kill the lamb and they're going to take the blood and they're going to put it on the doorpost. And then the angel of death is going to come. It's going to go over all of Egypt and the houses that have the blood on the doorframe are going to be safe. But the houses that don't, the firstborn of every family, by the way, end of livestock. So this wasn't just humans. This was also livestock. The firstborn of each one will die. And so this culminates in a situation where there's an evening, there's this practice, this happens, and then when Pharaoh realizes what has happened and he sees all the death that has taken, taken its place across the land, he finally says, get out. You need to go. And so here's the story just a little bit from Exodus 12 in verse 13. It says, buy the blood on your doorpost, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. So this is very interesting to me that God, before, before this even happens... He doesn't tell Moses what to do and the Israelites what to do and then watch it take place and then say, by the way, you're supposed to celebrate this. He says, this is what you're to do. And then after I fulfill it, you're just going to continue to celebrate this year after year after year after year. Now, fast forward a little bit. What is Jesus doing with his disciples? He's celebrating this. He's saying it's time for us to remember this time that God has said, you're going to do this forever. And now we get the conversation, we'll get there with Jesus kind of issuing like a new little twist on this idea so that we continue to remember it forever. But there's an interesting piece of this that comes up in the next chapter. In Exodus 13, verse 8, this is what it says. On the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. Now, there was a piece to celebrating the Passover where they could only eat unleavened bread for seven days. Now, if you have kids or you had kids, or you've got grandkids or nieces and nephews, whatever, right? If you gave them the choice of what to eat on a regular basis, my guess is, unless you have some very adventurous eaters, they're going to choose pretty much some of the same five things my kids would choose. So chicken nuggets are on that list. Mac and cheese is on that list. Hot dogs are on that list. Pizza's on that list. I don't know. There's probably a couple more, right? And they would choose to like stay in that vein maybe. That would be what, maybe some of us would choose to stay in that vein. So like that's what we would like to eat. But here's what I also know to be true is that after seven days, if I only told my kids they could eat chicken nuggets, they would be very mad at me because they would want something else. So the interesting thing is he says on the seventh day, you have to explain to your kids. They've had kids eating unleavened bread for seven days. This would not go well. But it says Why? I'm celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. He says, there's this moment where your kids are going to look at you and say, why are you making us do this? And he says, you're going to look at them and you're going to say, I'm remembering what God did for me. So every year 
we're going to come back to this practice and we're going to say, we're going to do something that's sort of inconvenient for us or sort of annoying to us or sort of weird to us because we want to remember what God did for us. And it's not about us being comfortable. It's not about us feeling like we have the freedom to do whatever we want. It's, it's about saying in this moment for this amount of time to remind ourselves of what God did for us. We're going to continue on this path. And so I, I, I want to just take some of this and say, what do we learn about what, when Jesus looks at this and says, this is how we're going to celebrate the Passover. We're going to do that together. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a new way to do it. And why do we do that? And how does it have its roots in what we see happen all the way back in Exodus? And the first thing would be this, that we remember the blood of the lamb that covers us. And so we look at the story in Exodus, right? They have the spotless lamb. They put the blood over the doorframe and it covered them. And when, the, when God came over, the angel of death came over and, and saw it, it saw the blood. And that was what reflected that they were honoring God and worshiping him and committed to him. And when we look at scripture, then we look at Jesus, he's known as the lamb that was slain for us. And so when we look at that and we see that when we are, again, this is kind of weird language unless you grew up in church, but we're covered in the blood of the lamb. Like that's, that's the truth. And so when God looks at us, he sees that blood. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see what we've done wrong. He sees the blood that covered that sin. And so in the same way, God sees us the way that he saw the Israelites, and so we remember that that was the sacrifice that was made. And when Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, he's saying that hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in the next couple of days. But I'm the sacrifice that's coming. And so we take that and we remember the blood of the lamb that covered us. And here's the other thing we do. We celebrate our freedom from slavery. Now, obviously, this isn't a literal slavery like the Israelites were slaves. But here's what... Paul helps us understand in Romans chapter 6. In verse 16, this is what it says. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Now, take a pause for a second, right? Because if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're listening to this, you're saying, I'm not a slave to sin. But let's just process this a little bit. If we have no belief in God, or we don't have any connection to him, we don't have anything that we believe is calling us to something higher or better, holding us to a standard, what will we always choose? We will always choose what we want. So what, whatever we want to eat, whatever we want to do, whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us feel right, whatever gives us the leg up, we will choose that thing. And that's the idea that Paul's talking about when he says, we, when if, we don't, if we're just focused on ourselves, we are slaves to ourselves. And what we would call that as followers of Jesus is we would say we are slaves to sin. Because we will naturally choose to do what we want to do. And sometimes that's going to mean we choose to do something that's bad for somebody else just because it's good for us. We'll put somebody else down because we want to go this way. We'll, we'll leapfrog over someone because we want to be first in line. And so when we recognize that, we say we realize that we were slaves to sin. And in verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on and says, Thank God once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from slavery to sin, and you've become slaves to righteous living. Now what does that mean? Here's another way to understand those couple verses. It simply means we have integrity. 
So when someone's not, when someone's not watching and we have the choice to make a wrong decision or do something we're not supposed to do, when we are, quote unquote, a slave to righteousness or a servant to righteousness, we can't help but do what's right in those moments. Like we know inside ourselves that we have to choose what is right. And so something switches. When we decide to follow Jesus, we say my personal desire, which in, in secret would be to do this thing or steal that or take this relationship or whatever. And we say, no, even when no one else is watching, even when I think I can get away with it, even when I think I'm not going to reap the consequences of this, I am going to choose what's right. And so we leave that idea of being slaves to sin or just doing whatever we want behind and we say we're going to lean in and do what God has called us to do. And in that, we will have freedom. And so going back to Luke 22, picking up in verses 21 to 23, it says this. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but that sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Verses 24 to 25, then they began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus said to them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people. Yet you are called friends, yet they are called friends of the people. But, in verses 26 to 27, but among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as the one who serves. Now, I've said this before at different times, but I believe, and I, this, this conversation that happens leads me to even lean more into this idea, that the disciples were teenagers, okay? They were young guys. We, we think maybe Peter was the oldest and maybe he was about 20 years old, okay? Why does this conversation bring me to that conclusion too? They start, Jesus says that there's someone that's going to betray him and they all start arguing about who it's not gonna be. And then they start arguing about who's the better of the group. So they hear this and they go, not only is it just, oh, it would never be me, it can't be me. They start pointing fingers and going, but it might be you. Like, I don't know, you did that thing the other day and I don't know about you. I don't know, I think I'm the greatest and you're down here somewhere and they start like ranking themselves, right? This is a very silly conversation to have. And so they dive into this conversation and Jesus says, hey, time out. Like, wait a minute. Being the greatest is not the point. He says, people in this world, in this way, are going to lord over the power. They're going to take their power and they're going to say, you need to listen to me. Do what I say because I'm in a higher rank than you. And he says, that's not the case with you. And one of the things that's not in the account of Luke, but we know from the other gospels, is that Jesus had washed their feet before this. This was something that was gross. It was nasty. Nobody wanted to do it. The lowest person on the totem pole had the duties of washing feet. And yet when they walked in, Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do. So here's the other thing we do when we remember and, and think about communion the way we understand it, is we imitate Jesus' servant leadership. So we look at it and we say, what does Jesus do for his disciples? He says, I'm going to serve you. And when it comes to leadership in any capacity, we learn that part of that, part of that leadership is always going to be making the hard decisions. Part of that, that leadership is going to be making the calls that have to go and having that weight on your shoulders. But the other side of it, if we're followers of Jesus, is to be someone who serves each other. And so and I know in a room like this, and I've heard this before from, from different people all through the years, is somebody would look at it and go, oh, but I'm not a leader. Right? I don't lead. I don't, I don't do that kind of thing. I don't have that kind of responsibility. I would say everyone at some point in life is a leader. 
At some point in your life, you are going to be the one who knows more than the other person. You're going to be the one with more influence than somebody else. You're going to be the one with it who has the responsibility. And so when we look at that, we go, okay, how would Jesus lead in this moment? I'm going to go first. I'll do the thing no one else wants to do. I'll be the person who goes and is the example. I'm going to be the person, when I ask somebody else to do something, I'm going to be right there next to them continuing to work alongside, even though it's not necessarily my responsibility. And then he goes on in verses 28 to 30. This is incredible to me. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a big responsibility. Do you remember what these guys were just doing? I'm better than you. Not you. No, you're better than him. And then he turns around and says, you guys are going to rule the nations of Israel. Here's what we know. We, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out for each of us, but when we get to heaven, we're going to have roles and responsibilities there. It's not just going to be like hang out, we play the harp sometimes, and sometimes we do this, or right? It's like kind of our idea of heaven is just not there. But we're going to have these roles. And Jesus has said before, as we saw even in the parables, like when there's a responsibility given to us on earth, the way we handle it is going to equate to responsibilities in heaven. We don't know what that looks like. But looking at this passage and saying, look at what these guys were just doing and kind of arguing and whatever, and then Jesus turns around and gives them this massive responsibility. Like God wants to bless us with this stuff. And he just says, use what I've given you well. And then look what's going to happen. So here's the other thing we do when we look at communion and we remember this stuff is we anticipate the coming of God's kingdom. So we remember what he did for us. We celebrate it. We imitate it. And we anticipate it. And, and by the way, like we're not taking communion today, but this is something we do every Sunday. Like that should be the goal. We remember, we celebrate, we imitate, we anticipate. That's the reminder that we give to ourselves Every Sunday when we come to God and we worship him and we learn from his word and we gather around other people that believe the same things and we serve on teams together and we plan events together and we go to small group together and all of those things. Like it's all to get us in this reminder of like this is how it's supposed to go. This is how it's supposed to be. But I also know that this is true. Traditions can become rote, boring, or hollow. When we do something over and over again, it can kind of lose what it's supposed to do. Um, I remember this was the case, particularly with communion. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up in a Baptist church, and the way we did communion was very different than the way we do it here. But the deacons would be up front, they would pray, and then they would come around with the plates, the big metal circular plates that had like the, for the cups, it had like the little slots in it so you couldn't spill it. And you had to like hand it down each row, and they would take it, and they would go, and then you're supposed to pray and process all this stuff. This is the way I grew up doing it. And to me, honestly, when I was a kid, it was just kind of like, okay, like, this is what we do, and fine, whatever. And then I met my best friend, and my best friend grew up Lutheran. And so over time, I ended up, we, we, there was like a lock-in that would happen on Saturday night, and so then I went to church with him. And I went to church with him one time, and they were taking communion. Now, communion in a Lutheran church, very different than in Baptist church, okay? Because here's what happened, right? They say they're going to take communion. Everybody stands up and gets in a line. And I immediately looked at him and was like, what is happening? 
Because I had never stood up. I was supposed to stay where I'm supposed to be. This is communion. I just stay here. Now they're getting up. I'm like, what's happening? He's like, we're taking communion. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, you go up front, and they give you the wafer, and you drink the wine. And I went, wine? Like, I'm a Baptist kid. Like, I'm not supposed to drink wine. So I'm like, okay, so here's how this works. So I'm like freaked out, right? Because I'm like, I'm going to sit down. So I sit down. I never, I didn't do it. Because here's the other thing. Really, I was kind of afraid. I'm like, I've never had wine before. If I drink wine in front of everybody and it's gross and I like spit it out or something, everybody knows. I'm like, this is a bad situation. So I sit down. I'm like, okay, cool. My, you do your thing. I'm just going to sit here. Now, here's the crazy thing. It got way more interesting when we went to youth gathering. They're youth gathering 30,000 people. And they all took communion. And I was like, I'm really out on this one. Because they would take, I don't know if they still do it this way. They would have this big old cup like this. And they would come up, you come up in a line, right? And you take a sip, and then they'd wipe it and turn it. And I was like, I know that kid's backwashing. Like, there's no chance. Like, I'm doing this. It's just not happening. This is nasty. So, like, you get to a situation where sometimes, and I know some people probably grew up that way, and that's great. I'm glad that you guys grew up that way, and I'm glad we do communion the way we do it now. There's all different ways to do this. The idea is sometimes... When we get in a, a way of doing things over and over and over again, it loses its value. And sometimes when you see somebody do it differently or we take it on in a different way, it will bring a new life to it. But the problem is sometimes we just do things over and over again. Like we just get up and go to church or we go to small group or we do communion or we do youth group or we do whatever. And we just kind of go, this is just what I do. And there's no value to it. There's no understanding of this is supposed to draw me into something or remind me about something or begin to help me process what it means to follow Jesus in this way. And really what I want us to get is that communion with God is not tradition, it's worship. And I don't just mean it in a sense of when we take communion. I mean, communion is the idea of you sit with somebody, right? You sit and you have a conversation, you have a meal, you have a relationship, you have that conversation. And so when we do communion with Jesus, it's having the relationship with him. That's worship. It's not something that's just, we just do it because we do it. It's just something we practice because we're supposed to. It's just something that we're kind of committed to. It's worship. And so you look back and you start this conversation with where was Judas in this? He just did it. It's just, I just know Jesus. He's not anything special. Like, he can just do these things. I don't care. I'd rather have the money. And we can fall into this trap of this is just what we do over and over and over again, and we forget what it's supposed to mean. But here's what I know to be true. Consistent worship creates a lifelong devotion. At some point along the way, it's going to get harder to do these things. And there's going to be seasons where we go, I don't feel like getting up. I don't feel like serving on a team. I don't feel like worshiping God today. But when we consistently show up and we say, I'm going to remember, I'm going to celebrate, I'm going to imitate, I'm going to anticipate. It takes every piece of our lives and says, this is what I'm handing to God. It's in the past. It's what I've done. I'm going to continue to do it because of what he did. I'm going to celebrate it because it's something I want to do. It excites me. It makes me happy. It's something I want to remind myself of. I'm going to imitate it because it's how I have to live on an everyday basis. And I'm going to anticipate it because I want to see where this goes. I want to see what God does through my life, our lives as a church. I want to see what's going to happen in the kingdom. I want that to be something that I focus on. And when we consistently do that, it creates a lifelong devotion that will not quit. And when, again, Dan talking about it earlier was so good. Like, 
when we stop doing those things, when we stop worshiping in that way, is when it becomes rote and just something we do and not something we believe anymore. We have to lock in and say, this is what I know. This is what I want to do. I value Jesus in this way. I want to pursue it, and I want the communion in my life to happen with him. So here's my final question. Here's why I want to land the plane, because I think this is so important for us. What are we handing down to those who are watching us live? It's so interesting to me that in Exodus, God takes the time and says, you're supposed to keep doing this because your children are supposed to see you do this. Your children are supposed to understand what you're celebrating when you do this. Your kids are supposed to know the value you place on this. And I'll tell you, as someone who's been a pastor, youth pastor for a long time, right? When parents quit worshiping in this way, the kids do too. When they don't see it be valued, and I don't mean just for kids, I mean like as a church family. Like there were times I, I looked at things that we did in church and I went, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why we're doing it. And it doesn't seem to make anybody happy either, right? And maybe you've seen that in every church. It just was the case of what I was observing. Yet I knew people, adults, my parents, my grandparents that did worship in that way. And so I saw that and I said, I'm going to value that. But what we do, the way that we engage in this, and the way that we remember, celebrate, imitate, and anticipate, those that are younger than us are watching. They see it, and they say, what value are the adults placing on this, and what difference is it making in their lives? And this is who we have to be. This is who we want to be, whether we're parents or not. But there's kids that are going to run up through here in a little bit, and they're going to ask questions. They're watching. They're going to say, what do they believe? What do they think? How do they understand what they just learned, what they just sang? And does it make a difference? So like I said, we're not, we're not taking communion today. We will in a, little, in a few weeks. But like, this is who we are to be. Whether it's actually taking communion, like in the formal sense when we do it together, or it's just simply living life and saying, how am I communing with Jesus? How am I interacting with him? What does my relationship with him look like? Am I aiming to remember, celebrate, imitate, and anticipate? Or is it something I simply do because I'm supposed to? And if it's something we simply do because we're supposed to, we're missing it. We're missing it. No one likes to do something just because you're supposed to. No one likes that answer. Why do we do it this way? Well, because we're supposed to. No one likes that answer. The answer is because this is who we're called to be. And this is how we build a relationship with Jesus. And this is how we honor what he's done for us. We do it this way because the Israelites were looking back and they saw the Passover. We look back and we see the cross. We say that's what we're called to. We want to remember that because it makes such a difference in who we are and in our everyday lives. And I want us to do that. I want us to live that way. And I want us to live that way because it honors God, but I also want us to live that way so that those that are watching us, whether it's kids or whether it's coworkers or classmates or whoever, they look at us and go, I see something that I didn't see in somebody else. I see something different. And I don't know what it is, but you have a value in you that I don't see in other people. And you've got something I want. And so when you live that way, it intrigues me. It shows me there's value to what you do and how you live. So the question is, how are we doing that? Are people seeing us remember, 
celebrate, imitate, and anticipating what God is going to do in and through us. Would you pray with me today? Jesus, as we look at this story and we understand what it meant for you to sit with your disciples and have this conversation and process this idea as, as you remembered Passover, but then you gave us a new way of understanding how we are to see the sacrifice you would make for us. We know that it was heavy. And you gave us the instructions that we're to do this in remembrance of you. We're to continue this celebration, this idea that we're going to remember what you did for us. We're going to celebrate it. And we're going to live it out. And I pray that church, that communion, that serving, whatever it would be, just doing life with you, that it wouldn't be something that's just rote or boring or something we do because we're supposed to, but that we would do it because we love you and we want to show others what it means to pursue you, that we wouldn't seem close to you, that we wouldn't be people that just look like they know you, but that we would be people that love and know you deeply. And that in so doing, we w- other people would see that and they would catch on and, and they would want that for themselves as well. We're grateful that we can do this together, that when we come together for communion or church or whatever, that we, we're not alone. We get to look at each other and encourage each other to do this as well. And we pray that GFC would be a place where that happens each and every week. In Jesus' name, amen.